This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Welcome to Grace Church. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really a a joy to have you with us. Thanks for thanks for being here today. And we are uh, in the middle of a series, towards the end of a series, uh, on uh, the book of Proverbs. But specifically, we're looking at Proverbs for the home. Uh, Proverbs for, uh, what, what does God say to us through the book of Proverbs about our home life? So the first uh, week, we looked at what does the book of Proverbs have to say to husbands? And then the next week, we looked at what does the book of Proverbs have to say to wives? And then last week, uh, we looked at what does the book of Proverbs have to say to marriage, to marriage, married couples. And today, uh, I want to address parents from a various uh, different Proverbs. What does the book of Proverbs have to say to parents? So before we jump into that, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us. God, we come to you today aware of our need And where we're not aware, we pray that you would make us aware. God, we come to you uh, needing instruction from your word, all of us. We we want to be hearers of your word and doers. So I pray that you would give us the wonderful gift of the Spirit, the gift of illumination, that as we read your scripture today, it would make sense and it would grip our hearts and turn our wills uh, to obey and to trust you, Lord. We pray most of all that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at your word and his glory, uh, our loving Savior, we pray that uh, both the cross and resurrection would be in view today as we read and study your word. So have your way with us and speak to each of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a bit of a challenge to teach on parenting simply because, uh, among other reasons, that uh, we're a variety of folks here today. There's many of us that are single. Uh, we have a lot of singles in our church. We've taught on singleness before, but uh, it's not today's topic. So there's singles who have never been married or don't have children. Uh, there are single parents in the church. Uh, there are married people without children. Uh, there are married people with very young children. And you're looking for some kind of parenting tip today that's very different than married people with school-aged children, which is very different than people who are married but have adult children at the empty nest stage of life. So uh, it's frankly just will be impossible for me to serve everyone equally well here this morning. But I want to say this, whatever your context in life, this subject matters, It matters to all of us because we are a church family, so we care for one another, we bear one another's burdens, we celebrate with one another uh, as well. It matters because we're a church family, and what happens with the next generation has an effect on all of us. So it really does matter to all of us. Some of you may not be a parent, but you serve in Grace Kids. You serve in the children's ministry. So maybe you're listening to the podcast because you're back there even as we speak. Thank you very much for what you are doing. Uh, But if you serve in children's ministry, you are seeking to partner with parents uh, to help them, come alongside them and help them uh, raise their children to know Christ and follow him. Maybe you serve in the student ministry, the same thing. You could not be a parent, but you serve with the youth, and you're there to partner with parents as they seek to teach their children to know and follow Christ. So it really is important. All of us have a stake here. It's really important for all of us as a church, and I would encourage you, uh, whether you're a parent or not, for us all to make this a matter of prayer, that we would pray for the children in this church. 
and that we would pray for their parents as well, not just our own children, but other children and their parents as well, that God would do a work in them, that we would not be a one-generation church, but that we'd be a, a church that passes the faith on to the next generation. And we all have a part in that, whether you're a parent or not, at least by prayer, and uh, also by coming along and s- serving alongside families and befriending them, and, and perhaps even serving tangibly in something like Grace Kids or the student ministry. So today we're going to look at Proverbs and what it has to say about parenting. But before I want to to introduce this, I want to read to you an account from a book called The Proverbs Driven Life. And uh, the author of that book is Anthony Salvaggio. And this is what he says. He says, I used to be an expert on raising and disciplining children. I possessed deep biblical insights into all the rich dynamics and subtle intricacies of parent-child interactions. I saw clearly how God's word can speak into every situation, illuminating each child-rearing moment with perfect clarity and providing the ideal course of action. Then something unprecedented happened, something that put all of my neat, tidy theories under severe strain. For the first time, I became a father. What a shock it was to find that children don't share my sophisticated perspective on how to raise them. In fact, from a very young age, they seem to demonstrate a firm belief in some completely different view. At first, I didn't handle this very well. Today, by God's grace, I am a far better parent than I was when our children were infants. And I know that while there is a great deal of clear guidance in Scripture about raising children, it's not as easy to apply as I once thought. I realize now that one of the key factors I didn't grasp in my first years as a father, much less during my expert phase, is that every time a parent interacts with a child... There are two sinners in the room, not just one. Children may be born foolish, helpless, and ignorant, but it is their parents who are the truly needy ones. The parents who are the truly needy ones. I've, I've been profoundly blessed to be a parent for 28 years, and no role in life has revealed my weaknesses, my sins, my ignorance than parenting. There are few, if any, areas where I have felt and still do feel more consistently inadequate. And that's not a statement about my kids. I've got great kids. That's a statement about me and my need. If you are a parent, you will face circumstances that will cause you to cry out to God for help. And the reason is because God loves you, and he is committed to each of us to bring challenging circumstances from all, all way, many, many different ways, challenges into our lives so that we see our need for him and we return to him asking for his help. And so wherever you are as a parent today, you may find yourself and this is a good thing, needing help. You may be sitting here this morning dozing because you have an infant who won't sleep. You may have an eight-year-old who won't obey. 
You may have a teenager who won't communicate. You may have an adult child who won't walk in the way of the Lord, but has chosen a different path. Parenting will bring you to your knees. And that's glorious. Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, said that I do my best parenting through prayer. Feeling needy, if you're here today and you feel needy, that qualifies you to parent faithfully. Feeling needy qualifies you to parent faithfully. So today, I want us to look at a verse. We're going to look at a number of verses, but we're going to start with a proverb that is uh, perhaps the best-known parenting verse in the book of Proverbs. It might be the best-known parenting verse in all the Bible. And this is what I find about this verse. I find that this verse is a verse that is full of certainty and hope and vision and confidence for some parents. Those are usually younger parents. And then I find that this verse for some is a verse that brings a measure of confusion, maybe even a measure of guilt, sometimes a measure of regret for other parents. Those are often older parents. Yet this is a verse that is is powerful. When we rightly understand this verse and what God is seeking to accomplish in our lives through this verse, I believe we'll see it as beautiful as a pointer to Jesus that will, uh, will, will be a verse that we will cherish uh, because it will ultimately point to him. Here's the verse, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, maybe if you're new, you're not even familiar with the Bible, you may have heard that one. Uh, you may have heard this from before because it's oft quoted. It, it makes its way onto coffee cups and uh, stitched onto pillows. And it's, it's one of those kind of verses that we grab onto and, and appropriately so. It's a powerful verse. And what I want to do is talk about two things. I want to talk about the, the, the point up to the semicolon to start with. And then I want to point to the part after the semicolon as you see it there on the screen. And so the first part I want to talk about train up. And the second part, I want to talk about trust God. Train up and trust God. So first of all, train up. Uh, In many ways, this first half of the verse, train up a child in the way he should go, in many ways, that is the job description, biblically, for a parent. But we need to ask, what does it mean to train up? What does that phrase mean, that, that verb, to train up? It's interesting. I did not know this until this week when I was studying this passage. But this same word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And its other uses are somewhat informative to how to think about this. Other, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's used to mean dedicate. Dedicate. It, it's used uh, to dedicate the temple. Uh, it's used to dedicate a house. It, it's used at a time of dedication. And think about that. In dedicating a house or a temple, what are we doing? Well, we are, uh, we are acknowledging a beginning, an initiating. We are inaugurating something. In dedicating a building, we are beginning something with its intended use in view. And so in training up a child, you are setting his path with his intended purpose in view. You are orienting her to the direction that she should travel. You are beginning, inaugurating, starting off, 
uh, their pathway and pointing them in the way they should head. So what is that direction that they should head? In the book of Proverbs, it is the way of wisdom. The book of Proverbs starts off by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So it is from the very beginning a book about knowing God, a book about walking in wisdom. So you were called to prepare your child for a life of knowing and following biblical wisdom. Now here's the thing if we read the whole Bible, if we move beyond the book of Proverbs and read the whole Bible, and we always should, we should look for the overall story line of the Bible and see where does something like the book of Proverbs fit in. Here's what we'll learn. If we read into the New Testament, we will learn that wisdom is not just a pathway for life, as it often is described in Proverbs. Wisdom is ultimately a person. Wisdom is the person of Jesus Christ. For instance, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.30, You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So Jesus is our wisdom. He teaches wisdom. He lives a life of wisdom. But he actually is wisdom, the wisdom of God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. So when we think about what is the way they should go, train up a child in the way he should go. The way he should go is the way of wisdom, which is the way of Christ. It is to know, believe, and follow Jesus as a disciple in all of life. Now, if we look around, the reason I'm pointing this out is because this is really important. What's the direction? The direction is Christ. The direction is his word. The direction is building into our kids the truth that we're sinners, but Christ died for our sin. Christ was buried and rose again to defeat our sin and to empower us to live for him and to walk with him. So why is it important to say that that is the pathway that we are on? Well, the reason is because that is a countercultural pathway. That's a countercultural pathway in the Bible Belt, or what remains of the Bible Belt. That, that's a countercultural pathway. Train up a child in the way he or she should go, which is following faithfully Christ. If, if we look around, even in our own city, a place that I love and am so grateful to be here, but if you even look around in our own surrounding culture right here, you may feel like the message that you hear and the message that we breathe all around us is this, train up your child to be a success. Train up your child to be a success by the culture's standards. That's very different than this verse. Train up a child in the way he should go is very, very different than train up a child to be a success by your culture's standards. The pressure around us is train up your child to be a great student. Train up your child to be a great athlete. One magazine ranked Frisco as the best city in the country to raise an athlete. Train up your child to be a great athlete. Train up your child to be a great musician. Train up your child to get into a good, no, a great college. Train up your child to be well-rounded, excel in all areas, to get into a great college so that your child can then get a great job. Train up your child ultimately to get a great job. Raise An intelligent, athletic, musical, smart, 
well-rounded person. Make that your goal, and you will have the most well-rounded kid in hell. That's not the goal. The goal is not temporal success. The goal is to know and follow Christ. And that's why Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and to lose his soul? So I just don't take it for granted at all in a Christian church that we all buy in to the truth that what is primary and what is central and what is the ultimate goal of parenting is to train up a child to know, love, follow, and serve Jesus Christ. Because our schedules and our emphases and what we are passionate about and what we run ourselves ragged about is often pursuits other than that. Now, the person who follows Christ may, in fact, experience much success by the culture standards. As a matter of fact, if you follow, empowered by the Spirit, by the grace of God, if you follow and obey uh, many of the Proverbs, you will probably find yourself successful in life. If you are wise, if you are careful with your speech, if you are diligent and not lazy, if you serve others, listen, people want to hire folks like that and pay them well. So obviously, following Christ may bring secondary benefits into one's life, but that is not the goal. Success by the culture's standards is not the goal. We want to steward our gifts, but the goal is faithfulness to Jesus. So how do we train up our children to know Jesus and walk in the way of his word? Well, The book of Proverbs gives us probably a number of ways. I'm going to highlight three. Here are three ways in the book of Proverbs that we're taught to train up. Number one, we're taught to train up by modeling. Modeling. That is, we are called to model the way. Not just sort of stand here and say, go that way. I'm not going, but go that way. (laughs) It's not that. It's come with, it's follow me as we go this way. So it's modeling a life uh, that involves following Christ. Let, let, let's look at Proverbs fourteen twenty six. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Now, the, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about the fear of the Lord. I, I mentioned that it opens with that, the fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge. For the, for the person who knows Jesus, who is, has their sins forgiven, who is united to him, who has new life in Christ, the fear of the Lord never means that we are to sort of be afraid that he will harm us. It's not fear in the sense that you would have as, as uh, like you might fear someone that is seeking to, uh, to do you uh, some kind of harm in some way. Uh, We are united to Christ. We are forgiven. We are adopted into his family as his children. So our God is not a God that is looking to uh, hurt us or something like this. It's not that kind of a fear. Rather, the fear of the Lord speaks of a reverence of God, an awe of God. Sometimes the fear of the Lord is described as reverential awe. What does that mean? It means that I get a glimpse of what God is like. I see his character and his nature, and I'm amazed 
as we all would be if we see him. When you grasp the character of God in the scripture, it is breathtaking. It is amazing. He is glorious. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He knows all things. He is present in all places simultaneously, uh, equally. God, he is, he is, uh, has all power. He can do whatever he wants. He is sovereign. He rules. So God is amazing. And the fear of the Lord stems from seeing God as he is, and then living a life before him in awe of him, a God-centered life, amazed by him. And, the, and what happens is when we see how great God is, we will at the same time see how small we are. The fear of the Lord produces humility because it produces an amazement at the grandeur and the greatness of God and an accurate assessment of who I am, what my limitations are, what my sin is, what my inability and inadequacy is compared to his perfection. So it is being amazed by God and living a life where we see ourselves as we really are. And that leads us to see ourselves as needy. And that leads us to constantly ask him for his help to make us more like him. The fear of the Lord produces humility. It doesn't produce the attitude that I've got this. Fear of the Lord doesn't produce the attitude of I'm in control. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing wonderful. The fear of the Lord produces an attitude that says, Lord, I need your help. I need your grace to sustain me. The fear of the Lord produces a parent that says, look, hey, look, I'm having enough trouble on my own staying on the path. I too am tempted to get off the path. I too am tempted by greed and lust and anger. I too am tempted by selfishness, self-righteousness, gossip and slander and hatred. I too am, am facing uh, temptations that seek to lure me off the pathway as well. So it's a parent that lives in reality. You can't fear the Lord and be a hypocrite. Fearing the Lord means acknowledging who I really am and what I really struggle with and being real. As parents, we are, we're weak. We are limited. We are sinful. Thus, the fear of the Lord yields confidence. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Where is our confidence? If we fear the Lord, our confidence is in him. This is the beauty of the fear of the Lord. It is not looking at me and comparing myself to others. It's looking at God and seeing my need, seeing both his holiness and his mercy and grace to me, seeing that he is for me, that he is my father, that he has united me in Christ, that he is with me, that he indwells me, and it stirs a confidence in him. The fear of the Lord builds confidence in the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the grace of God. So the parent who lives, and this is a, this is a verse about parenting because the second part talks about the children. So this, this is saying that if you live a life amazed by God, living in the reality of God, living real about yourself, walking humbly, acknowledging your need, coming to him, then you will provide a home that is a refuge for children. Hypocrisy is appalling to children. Humility is endearing and draws children in. It's a safe, what is a refuge? It's a safe place. A refuge is a secure place. And to be under the leadership of a parent who fears God, where following the Lord is not just a Sunday activity, but a lifestyle, where God is prominent 
in the parent's home, in heart, and in the home. That is a refuge for the children. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we're perfect followers of Jesus. It just means that he is prominent, we're seeking to follow him, and we're real. It just means being authentic, ultimately. And it means having acknowledged our need for him, being confident in his power, and then seeking to follow him and obey him. The fear of the Lord is acknowledging our need and pursuing obedience to God in the power of the Spirit. It's acknowledging our need and living a life where we are pursuing obedience to God in the power of the Spirit. I was, well, really just profoundly blessed to grow up in a home where I saw this lived out. Not perfectly, but I saw it lived out. Thus, my home was a refuge. I found a refuge in God, the God of my mom. I grew up in a home where my mom was a very godly woman, a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, My dad, she's not living anymore. She died a number of years ago. My dad is living, and he's not a believer yet. And uh, so my mom, I grew up with a mom who had many challenges in her life. She lived with a chronic lung disease, which ultimately took her life um, in her early 60s. And so she battled illness. She struggled on a daily basis. She struggled to just function and do normal life. Uh, She also had obviously, well, not so obviously, but she had challenges in her marriage as well. Uh, They weren't on the same page, my mom and my dad. But she was a woman of prayer. She was at the same time one of the weakest people I've ever met, yet the strongest person I've ever met. Weak physically, but strong in the power of God. She lived her life going to God in prayer, going to God, communicating her need. I lived in a home where I did not think my mom had it all together. I thought she needed the Lord, and it was obvious. She was praying. She was crying out to God. She was calling us to pray. She was praying for us, praying with us. I mean, at times it almost went too far. It's like, hey, Mom, where's my other sock? I don't know. Let's pray about it. Let's ask the Lord. It's like, okay, it's a sock, Mom. But, uh, but. But hey, she, the Lord was with her. Always, she just lived aware of him. And her weakness caused her to live her life on her knees. And it was powerful. And it was a huge refuge for me. There was a trust I had in, the, in her God who ultimately became my God. So I lived with that. Not not only is it acknowledging our need, but it's also pursuing obedience. My mom feared the Lord, and she she sinned like everybody, but she really sought to please him. As a matter of fact, one of my earliest memories, I was trying to think the other day, what are my earliest memories? And the older I get, they keep getting, I was like older and older, so I'm like up to eighth grade now. No, I remember. This is like six, six years old. I'm about six years old. I remember being in the back seat. And this literally is one of my earliest memories. We're going through the teller, the drive-through teller at the bank. And uh, so my mom must have cashed a check or something. I don't know. She was getting cash out. There were no ATMs back in that day. I know, kids. Amazing. Uh, you couldn't do it on your phone, anything. You had to, like, either go in. But we, were, we could drive in through where we were, drive-through. So she went through. She got some money. She had her little envelope of money there. And we drove. And, and we didn't make it all the way home, but we drove somewhere. I just remember going somewhere. And I don't know, at a stop sign or whatever, she kind of looked at the money and the teller had accidentally given her uh, a little bit too much. So my mom said, praise God. No, she didn't. She didn't say it. So, so 
My mom said, no, we're turning around. We're going back. And it was like, I just remember thinking, wow, this is a long, why are we going back? It's a long way back. So we drove all the way back. She went back to the drive-thru, explained to tell her what happened, gave the money, you gave me too much money, gave the money back. And she did that because she knew the teller might not know, the bank might not know, but God was watching. And so was a boy in the back seat. And that would found one of my earliest memories in life, the importance of integrity in small things. Walking in the fear of the Lord is acknowledging your need. It's not being a perfect parent. It is acknowledging your need and crying out for help and then asking God to enable you to pursue obedience before him and acknowledging when you fail, which is frequently. Acknowledging when you fail, asking forgiveness, and trusting him. There's something about that that produces a refuge that makes God attractive to our children and that causes us to feel safe and secure in God, wanting to know this God and wanting to follow our parents. So the first and most important aspect of training up is modeling. Imperfectly, but modeling. Number two is instructing. We're called to teach our children the way. Proverbs is a book that is about really a father instructing his children what it means to follow the Lord and how to obey him. So Proverbs, that, that is, that's what the whole book is really about. And throughout, I'm only going to read you one section, but throughout the book, we see the father addressing the son and telling him the way to walk, the, the, the pathway to walk and the pathway to avoid. And so one place we get this is chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is a very typical passage in the book of Proverbs. But the point is that we are to instruct our children. It's great to bring them to children's ministry, to Sunday school. It's great to bring them to VBS. It's great to watch a, a Christian video or something like that. So there's a lot of means of teaching, but it ultimately the most foundational and most important is the parent communicating instruction to the children. So chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your ear to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So here the father is speaking, if you receive my words, and he's saying, hey, hey, pursue what I am teaching you, but he's also pointing him heavenward. Call out for wisdom, call out for understanding, for the Lord gives wisdom. So it's not a parent that's just passing something on, just do what I say, but I'm instructing you in the way, now look to the Lord for wisdom. It is him, cry out for it. It is him who gives wisdom. It's instruction that points the children not just to the model, but ultimately points the children to the perfect one, God himself, asking for him to give them wisdom. And this can be done in a lot of ways. It can be done in family devotions around a dinner table in sort of a more formal way. But ultimately it is done in the day in and the day out of life, communicating, regularly dialoguing as a family, regularly passing on wisdom to our children, pointing them to Christ, explaining why and how to follow him, and warning about the results of not following him, the dangers of heading in the wrong direction. The Proverbs are huge. We saw that last week, the danger of pursuing the adulterous woman. We looked at that last week. So there's these warnings throughout to the sons 
And obviously these apply to daughters as well. But warnings throughout about the danger of heading the other way. So modeling, instructing, and thirdly, the book of Proverbs teaches parents the importance of disciplining. Now, the majority of disciplining in the book of Proverbs is discipline through speech, discipline through words. Words like correct or, or words like rebuke appear um, in, 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 the, uh, in the Proverbs. Uh, there is regularly this sort of speech which is not just sort of oh, I don't know, uh, just sort of generic, but is often impassioned and is also often a warning. So it's this kind of equipping, training, disciplining type of speech. But God makes it clear in the book of Proverbs that parents are also to employ corporal discipline to train younger children. Why is that? Well, because left to themselves, children will head down the wrong path and an appropriate Spanking can be redemptive for them, the book of Proverbs teaches. What do I mean by appropriate? I mean non-abusive, measured, not angry, not yelling, but a composed, caring, loving corporal discipline of a younger child that includes leading the child to receive forgiveness from God because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and also includes affirming God's love for them and our love for them as well. So we see this in a number of Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs 22.5. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So kids show up by nature with foolishness in their hearts. Little kids do not just know right off the bat what to do, what's dangerous, what's What's the pathway for life? So there's foolishness bound up in their hearts. And uh, one way that that foolishness is addressed is through the rod of uh, correction, the rod of discipline. Proverbs 29, 15 says this, the rod and reproof together, reproof is speech, corrective speech, um, give wisdom. So there's a wisdom that's imparted to the heart that's full of folly. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The child that's left to go their own way without any kind of discipline ultimately lives a life of destruction that, that, that not only brings shame to his mother but is, brings dishonor to the Lord. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So while the primary means of correction by far, if you count the verses, uh, in the book of Proverbs is verbal instruction, there is also reserved this, this place when necessary for corporal discipline as well for the child. Because what it does is it takes the child who is headed in the wrong direction and in a way that is understood and felt intervenes to rescue them off the pathway of destruction to seek to restore them to the pathway of life. It is an intervention. It is a rescuing to say, you are on a dangerous path. You are not going the right way. You are in danger before the Lord. So it provides that type of a wake-up for a younger child who will not listen to verbal correction. So Proverbs calls us to train up which is dedicate, orient them to the way they are to walk. And at least three ways in Proverbs is by modeling, we saw that, by instructing, we saw that, and lastly, by disciplining. So that's train up. If we could go back to Proverbs 22, 6, our starting verse. That's train up. 
child in the ways you go. Now I want to talk about what comes after the semicolon, and I'm just calling it trust or trust God. So here's here's the heartbeat in the Proverbs. Train up and trust God. Trust God and train up. Train up and trust God and trust God some more and trust God some more and trust God some more may not be an even heartbeat. Trust God some more and trust God some more. And while you're training up, trust God all the more. I'm going to ask you something about this verse. Don't answer, just answer in your head. Is this verse a promise? Is, is this verse a guarantee? Does the verse teach that if you do your part and you are faithful enough to do your part, then God guarantees his part, that when the child is old, he will stay on the pathway he should go, which we said was the pathway of wisdom, knowing God and following God. Does God guarantee in this proverb the production of a godly adult if you get your part right? Well, it helps to understand what a proverb is. I referenced this in an early message, but I probably shouldn't have waited four messages in to say, what is a proverb? The early readers would have understood what a proverb is and how a proverb functions. And a proverb is not something that, uh, a, is not a piece of teaching that functions as a promise. Proverbs are not promises. They function not as guarantees. Rather, they are wise sayings that describe how God generally works. Proverbs are observations, insights, divinely inspired insights, the book of Proverbs, divinely inspired insights about how life typically works, about how God typically works. And when they are taken out of that genre and they are applied as promises, misapplied, and treated as promises, what we end up with is what in our day would be called prosperity theology. Applying Proverbs as promises or guarantees is the very basics, the interpretive basis for prosperity theology today. Now, I'm going to give you a, show you a different verse, and uh, I, I want, want to ask you the same question I asked with the parenting verse, the same question I asked you, this next proverb I show you, and there's lots of them like this. I want to ask you, is this proverb a, a promise and guarantee? So here it is, Proverbs 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So the proverb says that if you treat your wealth in a way that honors the Lord, trusting, I guess that means by giving and by helping and serving others, the poor in particular, if you put God first with your finances, then you will, well, you'll be wealthy. In, in, an agri- in, the, in, this, in this world, in an agricultural world, barns that are filled and vats that are bursting to overflow is a sign of wealth. You will have an abundance. So is that promise always true in all times to all people? If you're living in a famine-stricken part of Africa today and you're generous, is it guaranteed that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine? Does God guarantee that if you share the very little you have with someone else? Is that what that verse means? 
Is it a guarantee? Is it a formula? Is it something that I can name and claim as a guarantee? No. It's a general observation of how God commonly works. Typically, all things being equal, and all things aren't equal always, but typically, all things being equal, the person who follows the Lord and is generous with what they have and give to the Lord and gives to others, their typical situation is they have an abundance, an abundance to live on and an abundance to give to others. That's typically how life works, and that's what the verse is meant to teach us. If you look in chapter 3 at the verses ahead of it, chapters uh, seven, uh, verses 7 and 8 say, if you f- fear the Lord, God will bring health to all your flesh. Is the verse teaching that everyone who fears the Lord has no physical maladies, no, hell, uh, no sickness and no disease or injury? You can find someone on TV that will teach that, that will take a proverb and make it a promise. Verses 1 and 2 say that if you uh, actually uh, keep God's commandments, you will receive length of days and years of life. So does that verse teach that there's never been a person who feared God and died in their 20s? No. It's giving a general approach to life. In this context, if you are kind and gracious and you're not a hothead and get out and make a lot of enemies, probably you don't get killed prematurely. If you don't sleep around and chase the adulteress, likely you don't uh, contract some kind of uh, disease that could kill you or her husband won't kill you. Or I mean, it's a general observation that if you live a life that is godly, typically speaking, circumstantially life will go better for you, but not always. And so not everyone understood that. Some people would take Proverbs and misapply them, and that's why we have other books of wisdom literature. One book of wisdom literature, Proverbs is wisdom literature, one book of wisdom literature we have is called Job. And the book of Job is written to refute this kind of interpretation. The kind of interpretation that says a proverb's a promise, and if I am good, I will be blessed in all circumstances. So the book of Job, a true story, tells us about Job as the most righteous man on the planet. And what happens to Job, the most righteous man on the planet? Well, he loses all his wealth, all his possessions, and all his kids are killed. He loses everything except his wife. So he loses it all. And then he has these friends who come to talk to him, and they are steeped in prosperity theology. He has these friends that come to talk to him, and they basically tell him, Job, you've done something. You have sinned because we know how life works. We read the Proverbs, and what life, here's how life works. If you do good, you will be blessed. But you've lost everything, so you have done bad, Job. Something has happened. God is to be trusted. God is righteous. And so if you're righteous, you'll be blessed. But look, Job, you've lost everything. And you're sitting around here all scabbed up, actually, with nothing in your life. You've got sickness. You've lost your health. You've lost everything. And we know why. And God says through the book of Job that that he is sovereign and that life is filled with mystery and that you cannot coerce God with your faith or your obedience. You cannot manipulate God to force him to act in a way that brings circumstantial blessing into your lives. You cannot figure him out because you are not God. And this is why God says to Job... Job, where were you when I created the universe? 
to which Job says, feeling pretty stupid right now for saying, for knowing how God always works. So we read the Proverbs as general observations about how God typically works. And we read the book of Job, God is sovereign and there is mystery. We read them together. Proverbs in one hand, Job in the other, never forgetting one because there's a tension and a balance that's provided in both of them. So back to our text. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Sometimes kids without Christian parents raised in atheist households become committed Christians even though they were never trained in the way they should go. Praise God. Some of you are like that in the room here today. You were never trained in the way you should go following Christ. God grabbed you in college or high school or later in life, and you're here. Your parents never taught you about Jesus, and you're sitting in the room today. Thank God, because that that skews the curve. That's an exception to what, what, if this is a guarantee and a promise, how, how did you get there? There are other families in which godly families in which children are raised to know Christ and they grow up and they follow another way. Sometimes they return when he grows old. So they grow up and in their teen years or their college years or their 20s or their 30s or even their 40s and they they wake up and come back in their 50s or 60s or 70s before they die. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they never come back. We must train up and then trust God with the results. The results are not in our control. So, is this text meaningless? Is it kesara, sarah, whatever will be, will be, God is sovereign, doesn't matter what I do? Does this text offer any hope to the parent who is sitting here today with a toddler or a teen or both? God bless you, both at the same time. Is there any hope? Absolutely. This verse is full of hope. God calls us to train up our children because the normal, usual, common way that he converts people and raises them uh, into discipleship to follow Christ in all of their life is that he gives them parents who teach them God's word, who model, albeit imperfectly, who instruct them in the scripture, who discipline them the best they know how, who point them to Jesus, and the kids see that, the kids believe that, the kids are converted, and they follow Christ. That is God's usual way. And so we are called to train up. We are called to model. We are called to instruct. We are called to discipline by faith because parenting really matters. Just to say this isn't a promise doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Does evangelism matter? Well, if God just saves people, what does it matter? Absolutely it matters because people become Christians when they hear the gospel. And children become followers of Jesus when they are in Christian homes who impart the gospel to them and teach them and pass it on to the next generation. That is typically how God works. That's typically how life works. And God graciously reaches out and saves many other people who don't come from that kind of home life as well. God has delegated to us to train his children. We only have them with us for a little while. 
to provide care, to provide faithful instruction, to provide humble modeling, to provide constant prayer. And we're told to do that with this general observation of how life works in mind. So we should do it with great expectation that our kids will follow the Lord. The fact I'm saying it's not a guarantee and read the book of Job doesn't mean that training is useless. It is exactly what God does. And so we are called to trust him. We're not to trust our methods. We're not to trust ourselves. We're not even to trust our church's methodology. We're to trust God. And if your children grow up to follow the Lord, then you say, praise God, this was him. I wasn't godly enough to convert my kid. If anybody's going to get converted by, by my piety or by your piety, they're doomed. If any kid's going to get converted <clears throat> because you're a fantastic, godly, amazing parent, they're doomed. God will use your imperfections, God will use your model, your instruction, your discipline, but it will be him that works in their lives. And so if your kids know the Lord, then you say, praise God. If they don't, then you say, please God, intervene and draw them back to the pathway. And if you became a Christian later in life and you raised your kids and you didn't point them in the right way, you didn't even know any better. Then you say, God, you had mercy on me, a sinner. You are no respecter of persons. Would you reach out and save my son or daughter who's now an adult without this kind of training? In an article called Broken Homes in the Bible, written by Richard Platt, who's a professor at um, Reformed Theological Seminary, he, he makes the point that all, all, all homes are broken because of sin. Makes it, he takes it all the way back to the beginning and said Adam and Eve fell into sin. And what happens with the next generation? One brother murdered another. That's not just, well, I kind of had a, kind of came from a dysfunctional family. No, that's murder, okay? So he says, we see it at the very beginning of the Bible. And so we all come from these kinds of places and of brokenness and we need the Lord's help. He says, what's the bottom line? Do your best to be the kind of spouse, parent, or child God wants you to be, but never take your eyes off the one who actually holds your family's future. If things are going well in your home right now, don't be fooled into thinking that somehow you have made it that way. Give God thanks. Give him the thanks he deserves and earnestly pray for his continuing mercy in the future. But if things are not going well in your home, don't give up on the hope of redemption. God delights in showing his amazing, saving power through people who have nothing left. Whatever the condition of your family may be, turn to the one who holds the future in his hands and ask him to honor himself through your broken home. I love that. It really doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We're all called to the same thing. To trust God, to look to him and say, Lord, would you work despite me and my limitations? Would you work in my family? There's a tremendous book called Parenting. It's called Parenting by Paul Tripp. So when people have a baby and they dedicate their child, we give them that book. So I'd highly recommend you buy that book or you go and have a baby and we'll give you that book for free. It's cheaper. It's cheaper to buy the book, but... Uh, over the next 20 years, it's cheaper to buy the book. 
than to adopt a child or give birth to a child, but they're very rewarding. Kids are great, but whatever. Just buy the book or somehow get access to the book. And in the book, he has a chapter called Rest. And I felt like there, there would be some parents, we all need to be sobered into trusting the Lord, the joy and the vision of what, how God uses us to mold and shape a child. What a joy to see him do that through any of us. So there's many of us that are very excited about the prospect of parenting. But there are some who have a measure of um, heaviness when they think about this. And I, I thought this quote from Tripp was so powerful. He says, success is about faithfulness not results. You do not have to fear being judged by God for the results that you have produced. You're not manufacturing trophies. You are parenting children. As we've considered before, you have no power to transform your children from what they are to what they should be. No matter how righteously you act toward the children God has placed in your care, if they don't transact with God, they won't be what they're supposed to be and live as they were designed to live. He's saying they must interact with God on their own at some point. You cannot make your children love, believe, surrender, respect, confess, forgive, serve, speak the truth, be pure of heart, and worship God. Only God can do these things. He would never call you to produce what you can't produce. No, he simply calls you to be faithful, to do good towards your children day after day after day, knowing that the results are in his infinitely powerful hands. It really is true that good, godly, transformative parenting grows best in the soil of a heart at rest. Parent, is your heart at rest? Is your parenting fueled by trust? Or does worry haunt your heart? You have reason for rest. Fight the assessment that the job is too big. Fight the feeling that you are all alone. Meditate upon and celebrate his power and his presence. And go do what you've been chosen to do with courage and hope. That's a good sending benediction. Go do what you've been chosen to do with courage and with hope, trusting God that he will have his way and he will work in your family. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.